I'm Claire Parker. And I'm Ashley Hamilton. And, and this, this is Celebrity Memoir Book Club. Ashley, three words. Describe this podcast. Fat with a PH. Okay, that's one. Chill. Informative. Okay, I don't think actually that gave any information. What I was looking for was something like sassy, snarky, fun. <laughs> this is a podcast where we are comedians first and foremost. And so if you're not looking to laugh or enjoy yourself, by all means, there's a read out loud function on Wikipedia. You could just hear the Wikipedia page. There's also book reading apps to hear them and, and read them. And then books themselves, you could read them. So if you don't want our take on the books, our fat takes, our <laughs> pH fat takes, then don't listen beyond this point. And now if you are with us, if you want to carry forth, if you want to come through this magical armoire into the land of Claire and Ashley's takes, boy, oh boy, do we have a show for you. Also, if within that armoire you happen to notice you're out of fresh linens. I want to thank Bull and Branch for supporting our show. Bull and Branch created a new standard in bedding by doing things the right way, not the easy way. Experience the best sheets you've ever felt at bowlandbranch.com. Get 15% off your first set of sheets when you use the promo code WORM at checkout. Also, huge announcement right now. We are going to be doing another live show, but this time digitally with Moment House. That way the non-New York Wormies can get a live show too until we can come to every single city across the entire world. We're going to target these live shows to the three main time zone sections kind of that we can think of. So we've got Europe coming up first. We're going to do Australia later, and then we're going to do the West Coast of the United States with three different live shows. But anyone can come to any of the digital shows. You can either watch them live or for seven days after we broadcast them. The first one is going to be March 16th at 1.30 p.m. Eastern time, which is 7.30 p.m. London time. So that's the sort of European aimed show. So get your tickets at momenthouse.com slash CNBC. Those tickets are for the broadcast or for a seven day replay of the broadcast or both. So get your tickets now. The link is in our show notes. And my God, do I hope to see you there. Now, Ashley. Yes, Claire. Let's get down to it. Sure. If you were a celebrity and you had a memoir, what was this week called? I would call this week a wake up call. Oh, my God. I've been waking up really early <laughs> because I have a little dog now. And I do think that people are right when they say it's really hard. There's just like a lot of things that you have to waking do. up. No, like having a dog and like okay. having a thing that you're responsible for like all the time. It's just a lot of things it's very exhausting but then someone told me that a couple of people actually told me that I definitely should not get a dog because it's too exhausting and I'm gonna just hate it and it's gonna ruin my life they said very specifically why are you ruining your life and I will say so far every moment of it has also brought me an extreme amount of joy I feel like a new mother I'm like you just don't know love until you have a kid this you don't know love until you have my dog not all dogs just mine and the other day I was walking her and someone a child threw a snowball at me in my body a little bit of it hit me in the hair it was aimed at you yeah how old was this child I don't know you wouldn't know I feel like you're the kind of person who would look <laughs> at like a newborn and be like was it six seven <laughs> why isn't it talking yet yeah. I would say definitely elementary school age like late elementary school age child sure 
and it threw a snowball at me and I turned around and I screamed, what the actual fuck? And I feel like I would have given this kid like a talk, like I would have like followed it and been like, you can't be doing that to strangers. What the fuck is wrong with you? But instead I was like, I have my baby with me. I can't get into an altercation. I normally would have fought a kid, but not with my kid present to watch me. We're in a fight with the neighborhood <laughs> children. Remember that one time I got into a fight with a kid at the McCarran racetrack? I was doing ab work on the side of the track and it was like, you're not even doing exercise. Oh yeah, I was a little girl, right? Yeah, I was like, I'm planking. And she's like, you're not moving. And I was like, that's the point. <laughs> She doesn't know anything about an isometric hold. Anyway, I just feel like it was a wake up call in that moment where then I looked down at my little dog and I was still so happy. And I was like, wow, the fact that I just got like snowballed by a stranger's child who was also a stranger. (laughs) (laughs) Someone else's property. (laughs) And, And I can look down at my dog and just be like, it's fine. That was a wake up call. Stay alert. And you're my wake up call. This is nice. Claire, if you were to write a memoir this week, what would the chapter be called? Girl bossing too close to the sun. Uh Uh-oh. So I had to get a new laptop. I hate buying anything online. I mean, that's a separate problem that I could get into for like two hours of all the mistakes I've made buying things online in the last year. And I hate doing it. And I thought I could just pick it up at the local Apple store, but they wouldn't let me. So I had to order online. First of all, it was supposed to come like late in February. Then they moved it up and I was tracking it on my little app. And then Monday morning, 8 a.m., I go out to buy a latte. I come back six minutes later, and there's a fucking post-it on my door that I missed the package. And I was like, how? I've never in my life heard of UPS getting to my door this early. And I know because I'm home all day, so I'm always fielding the door for other people. Also, like, how could you not just, like, look down the street? I did, and he was nowhere to be found. Yeah. It was like a hitman situation. I feel like they... We're waiting all day to come in. I mean, not all day. It was still very early. Well, since the day before. (laughs) They camped out all night. So I miss it. They do that thing where they drop it off at a hardware store instead. There's a pickup zone. So I go straight to the hardware store and I'm like, do you have my package? And they're like, no, it comes at one. So I go back at two and they're like, "Mm, it hasn't come yet. But they do a second drop off at four. So I go back at four and they're like, they're running light today. I go back again a third time that same day. They don't have my package yet. I go back the next morning at 10 a.m. and they're like, uh, no, but it could come later. I go back at one. They were like, you know, sometimes they're delayed. And I'm like, I just really feel like it says it's delivered on the app. It says it's ready for pickup. It says it was dropped off at this hardware store yesterday at 8 a.m. I don't know where it could fucking be. And so he's like, okay, your name's Claire Parker. And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, it's not here. And then he's like, all right, let's just like see if there's anything else we could do. And so I give him my address. And then he's like, oh, wait. And he goes back. And 10 minutes later, he has pulled it out. And he goes, we have a package for that address for Claire the Scarce. And I go, oh, Claire the Scare. I was like, my LLC. I was like, oh, my business name that I did specifically write down and tell them to deliver to the business that I own. Whoops. I was like in tears thinking that my package had been stolen or lost. I like could not figure out what was going on. And it it was me. I had stolen it from myself. Like I had like lost it onto me. Well. And I was just like, well, that serves me right for trying to be pretentious. I wanted it as a tax write off. Because I use it for business. Yeah, you could have written it off as that even if you didn't buy it under your LLC. Anyway, I felt like a damn fool. <laughs> that is foolish. <laughs> it is foolish indeed. Because I spent all of January making that freaking LLC. And then I so proudly put it on my <laughs> little return address. And then I couldn't find it. Very much reminiscent of back in the day at camp. I used to always make up a fake name. And then I would like forget to answer to it. <laughs> It's all very on brand. Should we hop into this week's memoir? Speaking of names. Yeah. That's not a good one. (laughs) Speaking of business. Yeah. 
This next memoirist is in fucking serious business. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Not one of your stronger segues, but... I was trying to think of one. You guys were doing Tiffany Haddish's book, The Last Black Unicorn. I have been such a fan of Tiffany for a very long time. And we avoided this book because a lot of times we don't like the comedian memoirs. I mean, I know we're fine killing y'all's heroes, not ours. Also not our potential employers. But I am here to say that this has to be, I think, when I speak for both of us, when I say one of our favorite memoirs we've ever read, it's so good. I mean, we're going to try and do it justice, but if you at all like what we're talking about, I highly recommend buying it yourself. Anyway, we did both adore this book. I feel like it's in our top chunk. This is another one that I will recommend buying. It is such a funny, easy to read, but intense book. Like a lot happens, but she does such a good job of keeping it light and fun. Mm-hmm. And I do think that we're not going to be able to get every bit in here. Like, we're going to tell the story, but she's got motherfucking jokes. I mean, this is one of the few books where, like, one, the way she delivers it is worth a read. Like, her writing and her voice is so unique and funny that you need to see how she does it herself. And then also, there's no dead pages in here. Yeah. I didn't feel like there was one story in this whole book that could have been cut that was useless. Also, it's a very quick read. So if you need something for like a weekend getaway, I think it took me about four hours in total to read this book. Nothing but respect for a 1.5 spacing. So Tiffany Haddish was born December 3rd, 1979. She is currently 42 years old, but this book did come out in 2018 when she was 39. And of course, it came out on the heels of her breakout success in Girls Trip. The intro of this book is actually called Invitation, not Intro, which I found to be a really welcome update. I'm sick of intro and intro part two and then <laughs> pre-book pre-roll I don't know I mean we are used to reading like 17 intros before anyone dives into the book and it's like just start the book it's like intro prologue note from the author note to the reader (laughs) a memory to explain how we got here something I just wanted to shoot down real quick on a page before I forget it don't print this oops (laughs) a grocery list (laughs) anyway so this is what we expect intros to be which is just like a quick disclaimer and overview of what you're going to get in this book she says that there are some pretty intense experiences in this book either you will cry or laugh I try my best to figure out how to do the second one I know life's no laughing matter but having experiences can be and it's like yeah experiences can be laughing matters and if you can make them that good so this book gets pretty heavy I mean she has had a hard life and upbringing and she very masterfully is able to be like earnest and authentic and get through some of these traumas, but in a way that's never too heavy that you can't handle it and always stays funny. And I think the way she opens this book really sets that tone. The first chapter is called Mascots and Bar Mitzvah, the high school years. And she gets through how she was bullied a lot growing up. She's like, high school was fine. I had a good time in high school. But in elementary school and middle school, I got bullied. And one of the examples she gets bullied for is she's like, I had what I thought was a beauty mark on my forehead. She later found out it was a war and she was like, it was just growing and growing and growing and all the kids would laugh at me. She would just try to cut it off with scissors and just sit in the back of the class bleeding from her forehead and then it would just grow right back. And all the kids called her a dirty ass unicorn. 
And she was like, they would make fun of me for having a horn, but what was I supposed to do? I did have a horn. Yeah, she also writes that they said she stinks, and she said it was mean to say I stink like onions, but I did stink like onions. And she explains that she would have onions and eggs every day for breakfast, and so she just smelled like onions. The way of setting that up of like, look, it's such a mundane trauma to have growing up because she gets into some much more specific awful things that she experienced. I do think having a wart in the middle of your head that keeps growing is like a little bit more than mundane trauma. No, but I think to be like teased by kids in your middle school class. Totally. Is very relatable. Like she opens this book with such a relatable way and just she makes it just so funny by being like, but the truth of the matter was they were right. <laughs> she gets the wart removed and says that's how the dirty ass unicorn died and the last black unicorn was born. Perfect intro. So then she drops this bomb. She says, I was in ninth grade and straight up, I could not read or write. She says, I could only read three letter words or things you can see on TV. It was like a first or second grade reading level. You want to hear some real crazy shit? I was in AP classes while not being able to read. I really respect the representation of AP kids who can't read. We're rare. The irony is people were calling her stupid and stuff, but she was so smart that she was able to get by through a good chunk of her life without being able to read. She was just conning the shit out of her classmates. Her classmates are teachers. She tells some stories about how she would just get away with never reading anything and get good grades. It's genius. And if she had to read something for class, she would go up to a boy and be like, I love your voice. You have such a hunky voice. Why don't you read this to me? And then she's like, I had a great memory. So they would read it to me and I would memorize it. But then like if she had to read out loud in class, she would get the guy to read her the paragraph she would have to read. And she's like, sometimes I would have read the wrong paragraph and I would just be straight up reading a different thing. And then she'd be like, what are you saying? This is incoherent. (laughs) She talks about learning to read. The person who kind of busted her on her not being able to read was a drama teacher. She joined drama because she was trying to impress a boy who was one of the only other black kids in her school. And so she just kind of assumed that they would be a racist school and pair up the black kids and she'd get to kiss this boy. And she's like, God damn it. They were trying to be woke. They were making it all interracial. (laughs) They didn't pair me up with him. And then she had to read a monologue and the drama teacher was like, can you not read? She did just teach her to read. She took her out of nutrition class or something every day for a month and just taught her read. And she was like, in a month, I was up to ninth grade reading level. And then she actually went on to like absolutely thrive. She started competing in monologue competitions and winning. As she said, she went to like a 400 person monologue Shakespearean competition and won the whole thing. Against the odds of everything. No one believed in her, I guess, except this one drama teacher, but... Even her mom's boyfriend was just like, I bet you you won't win. And she ended up winning money because she did win. That's just so mean to bet a kid that they suck. So then in pursuit of this boy, Audi, who she didn't get to kiss in theater, she went on to try to win his heart by becoming the school mascot. Well, she went on to win his heart by trying to become the school cheerleader because he's on the football team. I'll be a cheerleader. And then cheerleading immediately. She was like immediately now. Yeah. So she couldn't be a cheerleader. So she did the next best thing. In almost nobody's eyes but her own, which has become the school mascot. And she was so good at it. And unfortunately, of course, Audi did not want to be with her because he was like, I don't want to be called the mascot's assistant, which is what her younger boyfriend did get called for dating mascot. Yeah. So Audi wouldn't be with her because he didn't want to be the mascot's assistant. So she got a different boyfriend who everyone started calling the mascot's assistant. So really spot on by that guy. <laughs> I didn't know what was going to happen. But she was so good at it that senior year she quit because she was like I gotta get a boyfriend and I can't keep being in a mascot yeah so this kid broke up with her because he didn't want to be the mascot's assistant anymore and so then she quit mascotting and people stopped going to the football games and so the principal had to call her in and be like what would it take for you to come back as the mascot and she was like 
you have to get me a boyfriend. And the principal's like, I can't get you a boyfriend. Is there anything else? And she's like, I want $100 a game. And he was like, we can't spend $100 on a mascot a game. She negotiated down to 50 and she ended up getting $50 a game to be the school mascot. That is crazy. Because she was like, well, at least then I can get my hair done and my nails done and like look good and maybe get a boyfriend. And then also during high school, she got hired as a bat mitzvah slash bar mitzvah. She says that the guy who hired her called it an energy producer and she's like energy producer is what white suburban people call a hype man because she's so good at mascotting and hyping up the crowds they hire her as a bat mitzvah hype man and at first she was like I'm not trying to be a stripper she thinks a bar mitzvah is when you get up on the bar and show everybody your mitzvah (laughs) and I was like that is a fucking fair analysis (laughs) so then she finds out what that is she also finds out she's Jewish yeah Her dad is from Eritrea, which is right next to Ethiopia. And if you know about Jews, there's a lot of Ethiopian Jews. I mean, she doesn't know her dad, but her grandma's like, oh, it'd be a great idea for you to be a bar mitzvah DJ. You'll get in touch with your roots. (laughs) So she ends up making good money from it. She says, after two years, I ended up becoming one of the MDs and I started making like $200, $300 a party on weekends. For a teenager, that's dope. That's like good money in the 90s. The only downside to bar mitzvahs was that I killed a man once. (laughs) She was really good at getting everybody dancing and she would insist that people come dance the old people the young people everybody in between she got everybody out there dancing and there was this one old man who was like no no I'm okay and she was like no you have to come dance so he came and danced and she booty popped at him and then he died (laughs) (laughs) he he fell to the ground clutching his heart an ambulance came and then he died in the hospital later that day (laughs) so she quit bar mitzvahs because she thought her ass was deadly But she was like the best one in the game. So they kept calling her to come back and she wouldn't. She goes, I don't feel like people should be around me. I'm not safe. (laughs) But then I got a letter from his daughter, the dead man. She tipped me. She sent me a big tip and told me thank you. She said they'd never seen him that happy. They hadn't seen him smile like that or that happy in a long time. And she said that they knew this was coming. He was in his late 80s and they had been waiting for him to pass. And they appreciated everything that I did and I should not blame myself. She made some good points. And, you know, she did tell me to dance with everybody. She specifically said to get all the older people up. So maybe she wanted me to kill him. I don't know. After that letter, I went back to doing bar mitzvahs. At that point, they were paying me $400 a party. The money was too good. Then we jump to Laugh Factory Comedy Camp, which is her intro into comedy. So she explains that when she was in high school, she was in the foster system. And so she had a social worker who worked with her. And she was getting in trouble a lot at school for kind of just being funny, honestly for being misunderstood, for being very funny. So the social worker finally comes and gets it from the principal's office and says, Tiffany, you got two choices this summer coming up. You can go to the Laugh Factory comedy camp or you can go to psychiatric therapy. Which one do you want to do? Because something is wrong with you. And Tiffany said, which one got drugs? And the social worker says, therapy. I don't want no drugs. I had seen how those fuck people up. So I went to the comedy camp. And at comedy camp, they brought in the most insane coaches. Dane Cook, Chris Spencer, all the Wayans brothers, Harlan Williams and Quincy Jones to which she says I remember the day Quincy Jones came in there I was like what is he doing here he ain't funny but he explained rhythm and how (laughs) comedy and music both have rhythm I cannot get over the fact that 15 year old Tiffany Haddish was like Quincy Jones has no business being here (laughs) this is a laugh camp (laughs) niche down Quincy I will say She has truly no problem saying anything to anybody. There are situations she admits that she gets nervous and worried about what she's going to say, but that doesn't ever stop her from saying stuff. No, she'll talk. So she gets into an argument at comedy camp with Richard Pryor. Have you heard of him? (laughs) Do you want to be Richard or Tiffany? I'll be Richard. Okay. So she's telling a joke and he stopped me in the middle of one of my jokes. 
Stop, stop, stop. What are you doing? I'm telling a joke. No, you're not. Yes, I am. No, you're not. Yes, I am. No, you're not. <laughs> Me and Richard Pryor squabbling back and forth right on stage. Well, what you think I'm doing up here? You're getting on my goddamn nerves. That's what you're doing. Look, people don't come to comedy shows because they want to hear about your problems or about politics or what's going on in the world or celebrities. They don't care. They come to comedy shows to have fun. I'd had a pretty rough life to that point and I'd had some bad shit come my way, but I was pretty lucky for that experience. I try to take that philosophy and apply it to everything I do in life. That's why I think my life turned out as good as it has because all the time I was just trying to have fun. Wherever you are, thank you, Richard. That meant so much to me. And to this day, I try to have fun every time on stage because of you. Then a news crew comes and they want to do a story on her. But because she's in the foster system, she needs to get a judge's permission to be featured on the news. She's so funny and frank, but like... It's so heartbreaking, everything she says. But since I was a foster kid, I had to go to the courthouse to get permission on to be on television. Since foster kids are technically state property, I couldn't be on TV without the court's permission. It's just like you, you would want to have your parents' permission to be on television. I had to have the court's permission. That was my parents at the time, the state of California. So she takes like three buses to get to the family court and the judge completely blows her off. He blows her off. She goes, wow, just like my real parents, my state parents don't care either. But then she goes back the next day. She gets the judge's attention. She makes the judge laugh and the judge says, well, if you act on stage as funny as you are now, then you'll probably be a world famous comedian. The news came and they filmed me. It went real good and they told me when it would be on and I was real excited. Then the day it was supposed to come on, that day, Princess Diana goes and gets killed in a car wreck. I got bumped. It's cool, though. I wasn't mad. She was a princess. I get it. Can you imagine? <laughs> what are the chances? That's like a big news day. That was a big news day. That was like the 9-11 of post-Kennedy yeah. pre-9-11. So <laughs> it does eventually come on and she's proud of herself. She like gets in at the Laugh Factory where they'll let her come and do short sets, five, ten minute sets early on in the evenings. And then at 18 years old, her grandma kicks her out of the house and she has to quit. So she never technically left the state system. Her grandma did take her in. She'll explain this more later. But when she turned 18, her grandma was no longer getting money from the state. So she said, all right, I'm not getting paid to have you here anymore. So you got to get out of here. And the amount of money she was making doing comedy was, she, it was just not going to cut it. So now she gets into how it got here. And the chapter is called Family and Foster Care. And she says, the car wreck. Where do I even start with my family? I should probably start with the car accident. That's when everything changed. Before the car accident, my mom had it together. She had two small businesses going. She was a manager at a U.S. post office, and she owned two houses on the same street. Tiffany's father left when she was like three. Her mom ended up marrying the stepfather, who she only refers to as stepfather, who I guess was a pretty awful guy. I think he was cheating on her constantly. They had three children together, but like no matter what he did, her mom worshipped him. When Tiffany was eight years old, she had three younger siblings, and her mom was working two jobs the graveyard shift and every night they would be dropped off at the grandma's to watch and when tiffany was eight she convinced her mom that she could take care of the kids she's like look i know how to make hot dogs i'll feed everybody we'll go to bed by the time we wake up you'll be home anyway let me watch and i guess her mom was like yeah fine we'll give your grandma a break so then her mom leaves and they don't hear from her for days finally the grandma finds out that these kids have just been home alone for days and they all find out that the mom was in a terrible car wreck. Her stepfather knew and didn't do anything. He didn't alert the grandmother. He didn't call the children. He had just been out. They wouldn't let me see my mom for two months. The accident was real bad. Her head was open and all this stuff. They didn't tell me the details. They just looked at me and told me my mama would be fine. I'd always think if she's going to be fine, why can't I see her? And of course, by the time they get to see her, it's horrible. And she has like extremely traumatic brain damage that changes her personality forever to this day. After three months in the hospital, they send her back home. Tiffany is eight. 
I had to grow up fast. I taught her how to tie her shoes like she had taught me how to tie my shoe. I taught her how to put on her pants like she had taught me how to put my pants on. I was showing her how to make hot dogs like she showed me how to make hot dogs. Everything she taught me, I was teaching her back. But there was this traumatic brain injuries. Like it wasn't just relearning motor function. Her mom's personality had completely changed. She would say the worst things to me. I felt like all the inner thoughts that she used to have before the accident, but she would never say out loud, would all come out. She'd be like, oh, you look like your ugly ass daddy. Oh God, where's my husband at? I'm so sick of looking at your ugly ass. I mean, her mom just constantly berated her. I would ask my mom, how are you feeling? She would just say, I hate you. Her grandma at this time was supportive. Her grandma would say, I'm proud of you. Look at all you did. You're a good daughter. Then things became physical. So when her mom had fully regained motor function, she started physically beating Tiffany, not any of the other siblings. Just Tiffany. Just Tiffany. And eventually after a major psychotic break, she was locked away in a facility and the kids were put into the system. So after the car accident, her stepfather walks out on the family. When her mom has a break, she gets into a fight with a neighbor and the police get called and she gets locked up and the police come and they're going to put everyone in foster care. And her stepfather is there. Who's the biological father of the other three. And at this point, four children after the accident, he got the mom pregnant again. Jesus. And he shows up and tells the state, no, I don't want them. You can put them into the system. At the time, I had no idea why he didn't come back to the house after the accident. Then I found out maybe for my 21st birthday, stepfather took me out for drinks. I was real depressed then. Around this time, I had a breakdown. I was physically ill. She's talking about how she doesn't know how much longer she can make it because she's so depressed. And he says, you got a purpose because you're supposed to be dead. I'll tell you that right now. You and all your brothers and sisters, y'all was supposed to be dead. And she goes, what do you mean? Remember that car accident? You all was supposed to be in the car. I had a life insurance policy in all of y'all. I'm supposed to be a multimillionaire now and y'all supposed to be gone. So then he told her that he had taken out insurance policies. He had cut the line in her brakes. He said that he knew she drove too fast and that we was all supposed to be in the car that day. We were supposed to be dead. And she goes back and forth on this to be like, was he fucking with me? Or is this real? She says later he would say that it was not true. He hadn't done any such thing, but it was too late to get it out of my mind. He references it again a couple years later. She says she started hooking up with a ton of cops and lawyers to try and get information on what was like, what can be done to find justice or accountability? Yeah. And they were just like, I don't know. It's been 13 years at this point and you don't have any information. This is one of those things where, I mean, obviously to try to murder an entire family is like fucking evil, but like mess with somebody's head like that like why would you even tell somebody that if it's not true and she points out that like oh so he didn't succeed in killing us but he did succeed in effectively ruining our lives instead the mom just continued living with a horrible injury that has affected her every minute of every day forever so when her first year in foster care she first gets put into a group home which sounds horrible is essentially an orphanage and i guess at night they just lock all the kids in a bunk room and she says That's where I first started using my comedy skills. They just come and beat me up. Yeah. And she thought that if she could make everybody laugh, they wouldn't beat her up. But instead they were like, you're really funny. We're still going to beat you up, but we love that you're funny. So then she finally goes off to a foster home and foster mom sounds awful. She's just like smoking weed with the social worker. And she's like, well, is she fucking? Is she having sex? That's what I need to know. The social worker's like, I don't think so. And she goes, you'd be surprised. These little kids out here fucking. The last one was up here. She was 11 years old and had to get her a whole box of condoms. And then she tells this like insane story about how she was stuffing her bra one day and the foster mother's dad lived in the house with them. So her foster grandpa. And he was like, what are you doing? And she's like, I want big boobs like my friends. And he goes, the way that you make boobs grow is you have to have someone suck on them. 
And so she said every day before school, he would just like suck on her boobs for 15 minutes. And it wasn't until she was 19 years old telling somebody that story that they were like, you were molested. And she was like, huh? She says, I had no idea that I was molested in my mind. Molested meant somebody hurt you in some kind of way. She says that it like still doesn't feel traumatic out of all the trauma she's been through. She's like, I did not tell anyone because I was ashamed. I just thought I was like in on some secret and he was like hooking me up. Yeah. She thought he was doing her a favor. So I will say that if someone has had trauma that they don't process as trauma, don't insist that it's trauma. If she doesn't want this to be trauma, then it's not. Let her go. Let her. That was a freebie. That's just like a memory. So then she has a section called belonging. She just starts so like openly, I think, and vulnerably. As a young kid, it didn't feel like nobody cared about me or protected me. I didn't feel like anybody gave two fucks about me unless it was benefiting them, unless they was getting paid, unless it was making them look good in some kind of way. Me just being myself was never good enough for anyone to love me. And then she like lists everybody in her life and all these happy memories she has with them and like realizing why it just benefited them. But she also makes it funny. She tells the story about how she tried to join a gang in her neighborhood and they like wouldn't have her. (laughs) And she's like, please just let me belong. Her first real memory is of daddy when I was three and headbutted my mom. And she just remembers them covered in blood. At three, trying to make them stop fighting, I remember screaming until I pulled my hair out. And then she tells a story about how when he did come back into her life, she found him and he came and visited her and she bought him everything he wanted, an iPhone. She like set everything up, whatever he wanted. She paid for the flight. She got someone to pick him up at the airport and she woke up one day and he had just was gone on the Greyhound. She says, I don't get it. I don't get it because he's my dad and whenever he asks for it, he can have it. Isn't that what you're supposed to do for your parents? I don't know. I just know that I was crying all day after he left. I was crying all day because I just felt like that abandoned three-year-old girl again. I felt horrible. All I wanted was for my father to be there with me. I didn't care about none of that other stuff. And she does have good friends. It sounds like she has a friend who was like, listen, your generosity and openness holds up a mirror to the fact that he is none of those things. And that's probably hard for him. It's not that he hates you. It's that he hates himself. Every story she tells, she's the definition of taking your trauma and making it funny. She tells a story about her mom when she was 23. Her mom saw her wearing a short skirt and threw one of those detachable car mirrors at the back of her head and she was like in my heart I was so hurt and mad but I also felt like that was so funny who throws a huge broke ass rear view mirror at people sometimes I laugh so hard about it but sometimes I just cry because I know my mom is sick she's sick and she's trying to be a good parent I think in my mind I like to think she was trying to be motherly she was trying to tell me to be safe and not get pregnant trying to keep me out of trouble you know so then she says when she was 23 her mom got into a huge altercation at a Walmart with her that ended in her getting arrested because she like spit on the Walmart greeter and screamed at him. And since then, more or less, she's been constantly in and out of psychiatric wards. Basically, she'll get committed to a psychiatric ward. They'll even her out, get her on the right medication. And then when she is released, she stops taking her medication. Something happens again. It's kind of the cycle, it seems. So then she starts getting into boyfriends. I'd say she's in her early, early 20s at this point. She's working as a check-in girl at an airline. Yeah, at LAX. And she is dating one of the luggage boys, Titus. They met on a flight coming back from a festival. Yeah. And he's like, oh, you smoke weed? And she goes, no. And she goes, how do you smoke weed and work for the airline? They drug test me. And he goes, there's ways to get around that. And she says, that exchange basically sums up Titus. Sneaky and small time. Which I just think is one of the greatest cruel descriptors of somebody like she said that immediately in my head I knew exactly who he was that's such a specific type of person who works so hard to get away with so little and you're like it's pathetic (laughs) it's like the way that we always joke about how if Claire like fleeced me on everything we've built 
I don't know that they know that you don't have access to our bank account. (laughs) (laughs) I just like don't even want it. No, but I agree. Like if this whole five years of working together and basically being codependent best friends was to like run away with like (laughs) $3,500. That would be some sneaky small time shit. (laughs) Anyway, so she starts dating this guy, Titus. At first, things are going really well. Then he lets her know that he's thinking about becoming a pimp. And, oh my god this line made me laugh out loud she goes what you ain't no damn pimp you're a baggage handler she also talks about how much she loves that he's a baggage handler she's like i loved that he came home at night and smelled like luggage yeah i like men who smell like their work it means they have a job <laughs> and then he goes pimping is a job i don't want my man smelling like a pack of hose <laughs> he says all right i won't become a pimp but he starts getting shifty Ladies, here's a tip I have picked up from memoirs. I can't remember who else had this problem. But if a man is asking to borrow your car and not coming back for days, like that's a bad sign. <laughs> Red flag. So Titus becomes real distant. She goes, you know, in retrospect, I guess the signs were obvious. What's funny is that it took a child to point them out to me. I mean, literally an eight year old child. So one time she's like alone with his mom and his sisters. And the eight year old sister goes, you know, he's cheating on you, girl. He's cheating on you with this girl he met at the strip club. He's pimping her in pornos. What? Titus ain't pimping nobody. Yes, he is. You're making this up. No, I'm not. Would you say that in front of your brother? Yeah. So then they get Titus in and she says, he's cheating on you with this girl that you tried to get to be a stripper. Her name is Bertha. (laughs) That is a bad stripper name. And Titus says she's lying. And so she believes him. Yeah. At one point, she goes on a cruise with her aunt and Titus insists on coming because he thinks that she's going to slut it up on the cruise. And she's like, I'm going on a cruise with my aunt. And he has to borrow money from his mom to go on the cruise. She says, what's funny is on that cruise, I met the man who I would eventually marry and then who would end up becoming my ex-husband. They were fighting the entire cruise, obviously, because one, he's crazy and jealous. So every time someone talks to her, he's like, oh, you're fucking them. But then two, this one guy who eventually becomes her husband is like, following her everywhere and filming her on a camera and as she points out instead of yelling at the man he's like yelling at tiffany the boyfriend what can i say it was just all kind of fucked up but it gets worse the cruise was the week of september 11th (laughs) oh yeah so then they couldn't get back into the states because the states had just been 9 11 we were in jamaica and the jamaicans started freaking out talking about your twin towers are down titus was all mad about that too (laughs) (laughs) that one's fair i feel like he'd be mad at her about it oh that she 9-11 to the towers. <laughs> yeah. So then they make it back to America and she is pregnant. So she decides that she's going to get an abortion. She is pretty religious. Well, she definitely believes in God. So she doesn't want to get the abortion, but she's like, I have to. I can't raise a child with this baby. Like, we do not have the means. Wait, that- you said I can't raise a child with this baby. <laughs> Well, the man was a baby. I mean, she says, I felt terrible. I felt like I was going to hell for this. But you know what? I'd rather go to hell and die without a baby on Earth suffering than have a baby here on Earth that suffered. That ain't right. Even Titus, he's like, I don't want you to get rid of the baby. And she's like, we don't have money. He didn't have a job at that point. And he was like, we'll just go on welfare. And she was like, no. (laughs) And then she said, on the way to the clinic, he was trying to shame me. You know, when somebody's like, they want you to do something, but they don't want to feel bad about their role in it. They want you to take the blame for it so they don't have to feel bad about themselves. If you don't want to do this, you don't have to. It's all on you. You want to kill my baby? That's on you. I fucking hated him right then. Me too. And so she says she's like so upset going because she doesn't want to do it. But the minute she gets there, she feels utterly relieved to the point where after the abortion, she like does the running man and the nurse has to be like, (laughs) ma'am, can you sit down? Yeah, they were literally like, we need you to sit here and recover. And when you're doing the running man, you're not recovering. But like all dumb bitches in their 20s, 
And I say this, we've all been there. As, I say this as a dumb bitch. As a former dumb bitch. <laughs> she goes back a few weeks later and they have sex. But right as they're about to have sex, she like asks him about his camcorder and he gets really defensive about it. And she's like, something's up. So she grabs the tape and throws it in the garbage. And they have this huge fight or whatever. And she leaves. And then on the way home, it just like strikes her. And she throws it out the window into the dumpster. So then she's able to circle back and dig through the dumpster. And she's like digging through the dumpster. I hopped over the gate and jumped to the dumpster. I was diving that dumpster for like an hour looking for that tape. And I found it. I was so dirty. I just remember feeling like a piece of shit. I felt like garbage. I literally had actual garbage all over me. But I had to find out what the hell was on this tape. Okay. So also right before this dumpster diving tape incident, it had been her birthday and he ditched her. He was like, I'll come back tonight for your birthday. She was at his parents' house. He has to borrow her car to go get her something from the store and he didn't come back for two days. Yeah. So she finds this tape. She drives all around town finding someone who has a camcorder that can play this tape. She looks at it. In the tape is him getting a blowjob from Bertha. Time stamped her birthday. And they're talking about her. He's basically saying you need to learn how to get better at blowjobs so you can be a better prostitute for me. Let me tell you how Tiffany does it. I'm going to walk you through the steps of how Tiffany blows me so that you can blow people better. Time stamped her birth. I can't get over it. And then they start having sex. She goes, and that bitch's face. Oh, hell no. She goes, you ever see them chicks that got the big gums and little baby teeth? That was her. That old dog mouth bitch was staring at me as she got fucked by my man on my birthday. <laughs> she watched it four times. So then she decides to get back. She breaks up with him, obviously. And his family is calling her. And being like, don't break up with him. He loves you, blah, blah, blah. And at first, she feels really guilty. She's like, I don't want them to know what kind of guy he is. And then it dawns on her. If the eight-year-old sister knew he was cheating on me, the rest of them knew. She goes, there's no way that the only person in the whole family who knew he was cheating on me with his own sex worker was the eight-year-old. So she's like, they fucking know. Fuck them. So she decides to get revenge. There's two parts to this revenge. So part 1A, <laughs> eat a ton of corn. <laughs> 1B, take a giant shit in his basketball shoes. 1C, she goes over, says, let's make up. I want to watch you play basketball. And she gives him the shoes and he like steps in it. And then the mom calls her and is like screaming. And she's like, my son got your shit all over our carpet. And she's like, well, he is shit. Okay. Part two of the revenge plan is buy eight bootleg copies of Charlie's Angels. On VHS. On VHS. Then she spliced the sex tape into the copies of Charlie's Angels. And then she gifted his whole family VHS tapes of Charlie's Angels for Christmas. And they watched it as a family. And then it cut to Titus's sex tape. The whole family. It was like the kids, grandkids, everybody was sitting there watching. His whole family saw that shit. They all saw what a fucking lying cheater he was. They all saw them big gums and those tiny teeth. (laughs) They all saw it. I was tired of being framed as the bad girlfriend when I wasn't. Titus couldn't hide no more. Then I heard his auntie in the background. My nephew got a big old dick. (laughs) The grandma was furious. That is so funny to use bootleg copies of Charlie's Angels as a vehicle for revenge. Way to ruin Christmas and a a wonderful film. Can I tell you, the Angels would have loved it. She even had somebody like splice in a graphics right before that said Titus's Angels. Like she (laughs) went the extra mile. I love that for her. Can I say something? And you know I love Tiffany, so I don't want to be too hard on her. Okay. I do question, could you not know that there was poop in shoes? Do you think that there's any chance that you could... I will say, oh, are you like the smell? Yeah. Maybe his shoes just smell like shit. Maybe he has stinky feet. So then she says, 
This is honestly the best revenge of all. The next thing that happened. Because Titus tried to be a pimp and failed, I ended up actually becoming a real life pimp. But that's another story altogether. So at one point, Bertha calls her house looking for Titus. And she's like, what the fuck are you doing calling me at my house? And she's like, I don't know. Titus calls me from this number. Jesus. Titus was a fucking scrub. True. So then they get into a fight, obviously. But Tiffany talks to one of her wise friends. And they're like, why don't you game this girl they're like this is the dumbest girl of all time you cannot be fighting with her it turns out that she like wasn't getting paid that she was doing porn on titus's behalf titus was just pocketing all the money and then like paying for her to get her nails done i mean that is dumb that is dumb so tiffany spends the next couple weeks just talking to bertha on the phone and kind of working this girl and being like if you let me be your pimp I'll just take 10% and you can keep almost everything. It never even occurred to Bertha to like make money. (laughs) And Tiffany's like, you can keep dating Titus, but I'll be your pimp. So like right away, she's getting her all these gigs and taking the cut. And Bertha's like, this is the most money I've ever had. Oh my God. Thank you so much, Tiffany. She taught her some dance moves so she could be a better stripper. But she said, the one thing is don't disrespect me. And eventually they all went to a party together, Titus, Bertha and Tiffany. And Tiffany fell asleep and she wakes up and Titus and Bertha are having sex right next to her. And that, counted as disrespect so then she got out of the Bertha game and moved on to a better game which is hooking up hot men with horny old Jewish ladies (laughs) yeah so she's still in the bar mitzvah game at this point she has a lot of old Jewish lady friends so she knows all these old Jewish ladies who are unsatisfied by their men and she's like well I, I know some people and she ends up hooking up some of Titus's friends with these older women and pimping out dudes, but that kind of falls through because... The men, once they meet the women, like, cut out the middleman. They don't need Tiffany as protection. They're adult men. <laughs> yeah, and she's also, like, at the end of the day, people don't really pay for dick as much because it's, like, really easy to get it. Yeah, she says, so I ended up getting out of pimping because I didn't make much money. It's just not lucrative business selling dick. Dick ain't really all that hard to come by. It's so funny. At one point, she, like, literally just goes to the beach and sees a hot guy and says, hey, would you ever fuck for money? And he says... Yeah, of course. And she said, just like that, pimping dudes was easy. (laughs) So then she talks about hooking up with one of her coworkers from the airline who was disabled and how it was the best sex of her life. But she sits him down and just admits that she's too obsessed with appearances and shallow. It was a very dramatic moment. Poor Roscoe. Nobody ever saw Roscoe again. Yeah. He lived in a, a group adult home and like they never saw him. He never came back to the airline. I wonder what happened to Roscoe. But she did say, like, he threw it down and it was the best sex of her life against other future She was like, I'm going to fuck him and that's a nice thing to do. And then she was like, holy shit, did he fuck me? I made him take the next day off work so that we could just lay in bed all day. Yeah, so that's, like, the one thing in here that I'm like, I don't know. Like, obviously, I don't know that me and Ashley are the authority on what's offensive and what's not offensive. Definitely, I was, like, nervous reading it. I was like, where is she going to go with this? But it felt... The conclusion is that she fucked up. Not by fucking him, but by not being good to him. When she breaks up with him in a food court, he like stands up and says, your pussy is garbage and storms away. And she's just like, what was I supposed to scream back? She says, I told him I was insecure. I kept talking about what a bad girlfriend I was, how I wasn't ready for a relationship. I said, I knew he wanted me to be his girlfriend, but that maybe it would work in our next lifetime. I hit him with the Erica Badu. Maybe next lifetime we can have a better life, but I'm too immature right now. She does know that she fucked up here. I feel like that's where it's okay. I don't know. Then we're back at comedy. She was going through a bad time where she was just bleeding. She's just physically and mentally doing terribly. And so Titus tried to marry her with a $35 ring from Walmart. And she was like, no. And she just gets her period and it never stops. 
A $38 ring. Oh, okay. Sorry. She just keeps on talking about this man who thought I was worth $38. She couldn't stop bleeding, so they gave her some kind of medication that like messed up her stomach. So then she couldn't eat. She got really skinny. She goes, I felt like I was dying. I was crying all the time, bleeding all the time. My stomach was hurting all the time. I was so fucking sick. They eventually gave me some antidepressants. They recommended I see a psychiatrist. So I did. The therapist was nice, but she kept laughing at everything I was saying. The therapist says, Tiffany, what do you love to do? What makes you happy? I like teeth. Maybe I should just be a dentist because I really love teeth. I really like the way teeth look, but I don't want to hurt anybody. So maybe I could just be a dental assistant. And she laughed at that too. Have you thought about comedy? And so she gets back into it and she goes to her first open mic and people loved it. And she kept going back and it was getting better. And she said, it's not like I was bringing the house down and people were in tears at my brilliance, throwing roses on the stage and screaming my name. That shit didn't happen for at least 10 more years. Emoji, smiley face. But open mics are tough. Most of the people suck and aren't funny and the crowd can get annoyed and become hostile. To get any laughs at an open mic is really good. And I got laughs. People liked me. They enjoyed it. True. True. It's it's harder to get a laugh at an open mic than it is at a show. Much harder. And then she talks about how now that she had comedy back in her life, she didn't have time for a fake pimp who thought I was worth $38. And the more time I spent on comedy, the more the bleeding stopped, the stomach pain stopped, the crying depression stopped. I don't know how or why, but all that bad shit stopped, all of it, just from doing open mics. And then she talks about her first paid gig and how it was an absolute disaster, but just getting paid to do it felt like such a victory that she ended up coming back. It was that night that I realized how much I love this. And she goes, I thought about that moment a lot and why I felt like that. How could such a painful, embarrassing moment become the turning point in my life? When I think about it, I had already made the decision to be a comedian earlier in my life. When I rode that damn bus all day, two days in a row, just to stand in the courtroom as a 15-year-old foster kid that nobody loved, I told the judge that I was going to be a successful comedian. That was the day I decided my heart to be a comedian and make people laugh. So the show she bombed, it was all lesbians and she had no idea. And she was going in with all dick focused jokes and they like hated her Yeah, <laughs> and kept trying to hit on her. And she's like, I felt like a piece of meat. If you think only men can make women feel horrible, you don't know shit about other women. What happened on lesbian bomb night was when I did that show and those women heckled me and they were laughing at each other's heckles. People were still laughing. Yeah, the laughing was at my expense, but people laughed and I was paid. I got $50 for 15 minutes. And then she also talks a lot about how she feels safe. She goes, when I'm on stage, I feel like it's where I'm supposed to be. It's who I am. When I'm on stage, it's like this adrenaline rush. you got to show up and be on and bust your ass or people will not laugh. And then she also says it's like the only place she feels safe because everybody's eyes on her. Nobody can beat her up. Yeah. I actually heard her in an interview one time talking about that. She did this podcast called The Champs. Neil Brennan was kind of like coming at Tiffany being like, I used to fucking hate you because you ran the light like crazy. And she just kind of explained it in a really moving way about how like When she's on stage and she's doing well, she's like, I don't know. That's the place in my life where I feel safe. And sometimes the light, I'm just like, what light? I don't want to deal with that right now. I'm just going to keep going. I don't know. After reading this book, I'm like, whatever you want to do. I don't care. (laughs) She talks about how she very consistently dates controlling dudes. But I can't even get mad at the dudes who are jealous and possessive. You know why? I'm picking them. I pick every dude. I literally walk up to them, grab their arm. You are beefy. What's your name? You're sexy. And she's like, one of my comedy buddies finally was like, Tiffany, you need to just smile and don't say shit. Look at the dude. Smile and then look away. If they like you, they're going to come for you. You're a beautiful girl. You should never say, damn, you look beefy or you're handsome. You don't need to do that. (laughs) That's so funny to call someone beefy. She says that she thinks that she interprets possessiveness from men as love. And that seems like a pretty good assessment. Yeah. She said when she was little, her grandma said, every man is going to think of you as property. That's why they want to put their last name on your name. Then you're their property. So you want to make sure whoever you end up with knows how to maintain their property. See yourself as a house. And she said, I just wanted anyone in. I would let in anyone who wanted to guard this property to protect me. If you understand that about me, you understand why I was with the wrong men for so long. So then we get into her ex-husband. So she met this guy on the cruise that she was on with Titus, the 9-11 cruise. Speaking of cruises, 
they never have very comfortable sheets. I've always said that. Not like. Not like Bolin Branch. Good sleep is one of the most important things for enjoying everyday life. I am just a horror when I have not gotten enough sleep. And with Bolin Branch, you are able to really appreciate what is important. And that is a good night's sleep. Bolin Branch makes the softest organic sheets on the market and they only get better with every single wash. Comfort isn't their only standard either. They use 100% sustainable raw materials. And as the first Fairtrade certified manufacturer of linen, you can feel as good about your Bolin Branch sheets as they feel against your skin. You guys, I am obsessed with good textile practices and it makes me feel really good. I can sleep easy knowing that my sheets were made ethically. They also are the softest sheets. I am obsessed with them. I thought they'd be thrown into my sheet rotation, but they are they are the sheet rotation. I like wash them and put them right back on. They really are the best sheets. Even my boyfriend who doesn't know, he wouldn't know velvet from Velcro. He's like, whoa, these are soft sheets. The signature hem sheets from Bowlin Branch, that's the one that we both have, and they are a bestseller for a reason. They are so, so soft, not too hot, not too cold, a perfect year-round sheet. Experience the best sheets you've ever felt at bowlandbranch.com. Get 15% off your first set of sheets when you use the promo code WORM at checkout. That's bowlandbranch, B-O-L-L-A-N-D, branch.com, promo code WORM. Now that we've wrapped ourselves up in those sheets, let's wrap up this cruise story. (laughs) He was just following her around the whole time filming her. She writes it off as like, I don't know. It was 2001. People were just filming stuff. Like everyone was just making home movies. Everyone was walking around with a camcorder all the time. People were just filming everything. And that wasn't that weird. And it wasn't until later that she found out exactly how stalkery his filming was. But he lived in Atlanta. She lived in L.A. They did exchange numbers and he would just like call her and they would talk on the phone once a month for a while. And then it just kind of fell off. Yeah. So then out of the blue, five years later, he calls her up and he says, Tiffany, I've been looking for you for five years. I'm so excited to talk to you again. Tiffany says, well, if you want to talk to me, why didn't you look me up sooner? Because she had like changed numbers. And he said, I couldn't spell your last name. Then I saw you on Bill Bellamy's Who's Got Jokes. And I saw I was spelling your name wrong. Yeah, but my number isn't listed. And he says, yeah, I know. I got your phone number from a dude I know who works at Sprint. I'm police. That's easy. So then Tiffany goes, well, if you found me, could you maybe find my dad? He says, if I find your dad, you have to marry me. And she's like, totally. So then he finds her dad and they're engaged. It doesn't happen exactly like that, though. At first, she's like, I can't marry you. But then she goes to New Orleans to film a movie, and he just, like, shows up at her hotel. And she doesn't even say where she's staying. He just shows up at her hotel door. And when she opens the door and sees him for the first time, I mean, the first time in, I guess, five years, because she doesn't really remember what he had looked like, she's like, my God, he was ugly. Squat little dude. And then she says, later, he said the same thing to me. He said, when I first saw you at the door, I was thinking, this bitch has got skinny. She looks like she's on drugs. She wore the fuck out. I'm not feeling this at all. But the thing is, in the movie, she was playing a crackhead. And she's like, yeah, but I was trying to dress like a crackhead for the movie. He wasn't trying to be fat and ugly. He just was. (laughs) She says, the whole weekend, he's just like buying her stuff and doesn't even make a move. So she assumes he's gay. And then the next weekend, the same thing happens. And then a week after that, he wants to fly her up to Atlanta for the day for his birthday. And she's like, okay, fine. And when she pulls up, he has like a big house and she's so impressed and they have sex and they just kind of end up together. She goes back to LA and he offers to buy her a car. So he drives a car out to her and she's like, now I know that he did that because he had a tracking device on the car, not because he actually was worried about me and my beat up little Geo Metro, but she didn't know that at the time. She goes, don't get me wrong. There were signs of craziness during all of this, but I didn't (laughs) think much of it. Bitch. You You met him because he was 
sneakily filming you on a cruise and then called you to talk to you on the phone every couple weeks and then five years later saw you on TV, found your information, looked you up, flew to see you without telling you, showed up at your door. What do you mean? (laughs) But there were signs like these are the signs. The story you're telling is the sign. So then he moves out to L.A., but not really L.A. He like buys them a house 70 miles outside of L.A. because she says now she realizes that he was trying to separate her from anyone and anything. This is what I fucking hate. Okay, he says, you don't need to do this comedy stuff. I'm making money. You don't need it. Fuck off. You found her information because you saw her on a comedy special. She is a comedian. You're entering her life. You want her to just give up comedy because now she has some dumb, ugly husband. Of course not. You picked a comedian. Let her do comedy. Okay, I'm sure the stalker is going to be very reasonable. If only he had gotten to him and explained the situation. I wish I had. I think he would have seen reason. I wish I could have. And not only did he move her away, but he decided that she needed to assume the role of mom to one of his children. He moved out to L.A. with one of his three children. Makes you really wonder about the rest. Their first ever fight happened because she was drunk. She was coming home. She was all excited to eat cabbage. And she's like, only a drunk person could be excited about eating cabbage. So, you know, I was drunk as shit. And she's like, I really don't remember what happened, but he ended up choking her out. And she fought back hard. She hit him in the head with a pan. They ended up physically brawling and then he locked her in a room and she was like now I actually know that that was felony kidnapping she said I should have just called the police but I didn't know that he kept me in there till the next day are you ready to be a mature adult now are you ready to talk up a conversation like a regular adult he opened the door and I walked straight out the bedroom got my suitcase and I started packing my shit she tries to leave and then she ends up taking him back he comes he apologizes so she does leave him briefly and his mom calls her people are calling her she ends up taking him back and then i think we see this in a lot of situations in our personal lives as well once you let one thing slide everything else becomes a lot less of a big deal i feel like that first moment how you handle that really dictates the rest of the relationship it just becomes an abusive relationship And I mean, she gives a lot of examples of anytime she's out with a friend, he freaks out. He's so controlling. He's so awful. He doesn't even hide it. I mean, in front of other people, she talks about being at a comedy festival and he is very physically aggressive in front of groups of people. Yeah. Screaming at her, screaming at them. And then they go up to the hotel room. They're in Montreal, which is a huge comedy festival called Just for Laughs. And everybody knew that she was getting abused and like she was just ignoring everyone and she couldn't handle having help. At this point, she had tried to become a Jehovah's Witness and she said she was doing her like Skype Jehovah's Witness class and Jehovah's Witnesses do not believe in divorce for any reason. And when they saw the bruises and the welts on her face, they were like, you need to divorce him right now. Like even they were like, you have to get out of there. And she said some other pastor was like, you need to get out of this. But she just... It was really difficult for her to leave. One of the Jehovah's Witnesses called over an elder and the elder goes, nobody gets divorced. We can talk through this. You can work it out. And then as soon as he saw her face, he said, you have to get a divorce. But I wasn't good. I was in a bad way. All those people there wanted to help, but I couldn't receive that help. All I could do was push them away and then go back to the dude that was abusing me. Why? I ask myself that a lot. I don't know the answer. Maybe because I didn't want to be a quitter. I felt like it was my first time making a commitment in front of God and getting married was a big deal to me. I've never been baptized or anything like that. So this was the biggest commitment that I'd ever made in my life and I didn't want to be a quitter. I wanted to find a way to make it work. I didn't want to seem like I just gave up. Even though I got beat up, even though I was a Jehovah's Witnesses telling me to get out, even though there was a different pastor from the Baptist church also telling me to get out, it was like God was sending me all these messages to get the fuck out, but I just couldn't. Maybe it was that I just didn't know any other way to be loved. Maybe this is the only man that I had thought ever truly loved me. 
Maybe I just couldn't leave that no matter how bad it was. I don't know. It's still hard to think about this. And then she ends up seeing on his phone that a woman named Lisa texted him. And this begins a real all out fight. They physically fight each other extremely hard. And I mean, obviously, he's a lot stronger than she is. She ends up taking herself to the police station, which is locked. Yeah, she says it's closed, which is funny. She's like, I didn't know that a police station could be closed. And I was like, I didn't either. Me either. <laughs> Does crime go to sleep at night? <laughs> but anyway, so then she calls the police station and is like, I'm outside. I need to be arrested. I'm about to murder someone. And they come out and they start talking to her. And she's like explaining why she needs to be locked up. And obviously in the process, explaining why he needs to be locked up. They take pictures of her injuries and end up going to arrest him and taking her to the hospital. They're like, you are in a bad way. And I think it was just like the adrenaline pumping through her system. She's like, I don't need to go to the hospital. I need to be locked up because I'm about to commit murder. So they go to the house and they find him and all he has on his whole body is like one bite mark. Yeah. So he gets arrested. They end up getting a pretty quick divorce. And she gets a restraining order against him. But while he's in jail, his son is put into the foster system. And she's like, for me, this was so hard because I had been in the foster system. I couldn't handle the idea that this child was in it now. And she's like, I almost think that he let his son be put in foster care because he knew the guilt would be too much for me. So in trying to help her ex-husband's ex-wife get the son out of foster care, they end up, of course, spending more time together and they end up married again. Yeah. So she remarries this guy And then she finds out that he has been completely neglecting one of his other children. And that ends up being the breaking point for her. Well, she doesn't even know that there is a child. She comes home to an eviction notice on their apartment and she's like, what the fuck is happening? All the money I'm giving you for rent. And he's like, listen, I have a court order that my wages have to be garnished to pay for this child. And that's when she lost it. She was like, after getting together with me because you helped me find my father who left me, you would abandon another child. And that's where she drew the line and she left. She found out what her boundary was. Now we're back in the comedy game. She's talking about some of the absolute hell gigs that are honestly pretty standard for starting comedy. She goes, right as I was getting going with comedy, I kind of blew up in the bar mitzvah scene. So I was traveling all over the country doing bar mitzvahs. That paid better than my comedy gigs, but comedy was my thing. I like I'm obsessed with the idea that she was like the most famous bar mitzvah MC in in the country. Honestly, it checks out. I mean, she just has all these stories that I feel like me and Ashley, I mean, obviously she's way more successful than us, but she has this story about going to Atlanta and being told she was going to do a 300 person show and she got there and there was only 30 people there and half of the people were her ex-husband's family because he was from Atlanta. And at one point she slipped and fell on the stage. And so she just sat down and did 25 minutes from the floor. (laughs) People are always annoyed if I'm being cagey about dates or like when I have shows and things like that. And it's it's because I'm too traumatized by the amount of times that I've had a show that I thought was going to be a good show. And then it was like four people in the room. And I'm just like, I can't bear being embarrassed like that. Like I cannot deal with people that I'm trying to impress showing up to a room full of like my ex's family. She did a show where she opened for somebody at Howard University. And before the show, the promoters were like, oh my God, it's gonna be so fun. We're gonna take you to a party after. And she bombed so bad that they didn't even pay her her full amount. And she was uninvited to a college party. (laughs) (laughs) She talks about how shitty dudes are to women in comedy. She talks about everyone hitting on her or like, If she asks to open for them, they're like, all right, are you going to have sex with me or no? But the thing is, there is this thing in comedy where they're like, if you want to be successful, just be undeniable. And Tiffany Haddish is undeniable. And so she has all these stories of these men being so dismissive and rude to her and being like, 
are you going to fuck me? I'm just trying to fuck you lying about it. And then they watch her be undeniable on stage and they come and apologize to her. It is weird in comedy. I do feel like as a woman, men just assume you're there to try to fuck them, but you can prove yourself. They do kind of forget that you're a woman pretty quickly. Yeah, I was going to say the other thing about comedy, and she is like mostly friends with all these people she has stories about. The people who are in it, you're going to know for so, so, so long. This isn't like an office. In comedy, you just keep seeing the same people over and over and over again. Yeah, you're all coworkers until one of you gives up forever. (laughs) Yeah, so I feel like the fact that they eventually had to like come around and apologize is because they're like, well, we can't have this beef between us because I'm going to keep seeing her and now she has the power. (laughs) She has this interesting thing about, she goes, I see young female comics now and I see the same thing happening. Dudes try to take advantage of them, hold a little bit of power over their heads. I see that going on so much and then I tell them, girl, don't let him pull your hoe card. You'll get more if you keep your legs closed. Trust me. You'll get more stage time. You'll get more performances. You just got to keep your legs closed. And it's true. It's so funny because nobody told me that. I saw all these girls fucking all these dudes and getting stage time. And I just felt like I'm probably ruining my career because I wasn't going to do that. But those girls aren't doing comedy anymore. None of them. Those girls that I started with slept around. They all got kids or they quit. Or it's I became a social worker or I'm a nurse now because it was getting run through. And how long can that go on? They thought that that was the way. And it's not. You can't get your comedy stripes on your back. You got to earn them on your own two feet because you can't fake funny. Can I say she also includes this anecdote that I feel like I'd heard a lot about this whole like Kevin Hart is her guardian angel thing. The story she tells basically Kevin Hart realized that she was living out of her car and told her that that was dangerous and she couldn't be doing that. And gave her $300. And she does say, like, what is $300 going to do for me? He's like, get a week at a hotel. And she's like, what hotel for $300? And then he makes some calls and he helps her find an apartment. And the apartment is just, like, a dump. And I do think it's nice of him to help her. But I do think, I mean, where was Kevin Hart at this point in his career? Because $300, maybe this is, like, a pre-Kevin Hart as we know him. But it kind of sounds like Kevin Hart when he was already pretty successful and I feel like he could have given her more than $300 I also don't understand like did he have an assistant Google Craigslist like what does he mean he helped her find an apartment she's like Kevin Hart my guardian angel and I'm just like I don't know I guess that was like a nice gesture he says Tiff you can't be living like this you're a pretty girl like you're a beautiful woman why are you living in your car any dude will be happy to let you live in his house She goes, I'm not fucking for a roof. I fuck people to heal them, okay? I'm a healer. That's why I fuck. Not for no roof over my head. I got a car. I got a roof. It's so funny that she fucks to heal, but her ass can kill. The circle of life. (laughs) Right there in her pants. But I will say, yeah, it's not very guardian angel to be like, Tiffany, just use your body. (laughs) She can sell herself Bertha style for no money, just like amenities. (laughs) Tiffany's true Hollywood stories. This is where she just drops a couple of Hollywood anecdotes. She almost joined Scientology because they said they would give her $50 a month and she would live there and help around, which we know is. Well, no, she said that the promise that really got her in was that they said we can take the hurt out of memories. Yeah. Which I think is really interesting that she was like, yeah, the room and money was great. But what I really needed was like emotional healing. They showed her to her room and her room was a room with bunk beds, which triggered her enormously from her time in the group home. And she was like, I literally will not sleep in a bunk bed. Go fuck yourself. So she left. And then she talks about Will and Jada. And these are a couple of stories that I think she's done on the late night circuit. But she talks about taking Will and Jada on a Groupon swamp tour. And when they showed up, they're like, why are there other people here? And she's like, it's a Groupon. And they're like, what does that mean? And she's like, what did you think you're doing? And they're like, we thought that meant you got like a boat that you could take a group on. (laughs) 
It is wild. I mean, she talks about how Jada was terrified of being in a car without tinted windows. And Tiffany was like, Jada, you're from Baltimore. Stop it. And then she said Chris Brown came on. And Jada goes, who is this playing on the radio? Oh, that's Chris Brown. You don't know who Chris Brown is? I don't listen to his music. All I listen to is Shaolin Monks. I will say this really shows the side of Jada that did marry Will Smith. Yeah. You're like, okay, I see it now. I mean, when they got there, Jada goes, well, Will has to leave. He can't be around other people. He's too much of a star. And I will say they did like kind of freak out, but they said, can we just do the swamp tour? And everybody just settled down. People can like get a grip. I mean, you're in a swamp with alligators. They're going to settle down. Yeah. And also, I do feel like if you're on a Groupon swamp tour and Will Smith shows up, that like is reason for a tizzy. But you're not going to like continually freak out. There's not that much to freak out about. Also, she said that Will wouldn't stop asking questions and everybody loved that because it was like Will Smith on a Groupon swamp tour. But I'm also like, I don't know, Will, if you don't want attention, like don't be the center of attention. Yeah, he loves it. Jada did really go out on a limb to try and teach Tiffany kind of the Hollywood ropes. And I have a lot of agree and disagree moments. First of all, she was like, Tiffany, you need an assistant. You can't be like getting your laundry. I agree. And like Tiffany was like, I got an assistant for a week. I felt like I was giving my power away. And I also don't mind doing those little tasks. And I think that's fair. I don't know if this is actually the way these conversations happened with Jada or these are the way Tiffany is remembering the conversations with Jada. Because if these are the way the conversations actually happened, it's like, Jada, let people be people. They're allowed. Before she got with Will Smith, she was about to move back to Baltimore and just like have a house and live a normal life. And now she's like, I don't understand how you're just like taking your dog to the groomer and driving around with untinted windows. Your life is a mess. Tiffany says at one point she puts a photo of herself on Instagram and Jada texts her and says, get a better dress. And she sent me all these links to these designer dresses, but they're all like $500. And Tiffany says, Jada, I feel very fly in my $85 dress. Jada says, who made it, Tiffany? Tiffany says, who cares? It looks good. Jada says, LOL, you keep doing you, Tiffany. I'll explain when I get back. And then they do actually have a very interesting conversation where essentially Jada explains that you need to be wearing designer and high-end stuff so that people think of you as A-list. When you come out with this movie, you're going to be in an A-list movie and you have to act the part so that people treat you the part. Tiffany's like, I've been homeless. I don't want to be homeless again. I'd rather save my money because I feel like it could happen at any minute. Tiffany, you want to wear designer clothing because people are going to be seeing you. You're going to be in the eye of the public and they're going to be like, what are you wearing? If you say Chico or Ann Taylor, that's not going to work. You need to be wearing designers. It sets you apart from everybody else and puts you in a certain class level. If you want to be considered top notch, you need to wear top notch type things. So I agree and disagree with what Jada is saying. I do think that if you want to be a star, you need to act the part. Like if you want to be on the upper echelon of Hollywood, you have to act upper echelon. And that is part of it. I do kind of think that it's almost like a fashion versus style conversation. I kind of believe that Tiffany Haddish has this insane star quality that like from the days of mascotting, someone was like, no, without her, we have nothing. Whatever she was wearing, this movie was going to blast her onto the scene regardless. But I get Jada being like, you have to act the part. Do you know what I mean? I see exactly what she's saying. I do think... First of all, I don't think that it was like a given that she was going to be the breakout star. I don't think it was a given. It wasn't like she was some young ingenue. She had been in the game for over 10 years and she hadn't been a breakout star yet. So like, yeah, but she was working her way up. I don't think any breakout star is a literal like that was the first. Yeah, but to be 35 and still be like not that well known. It wasn't like a given. I do think that what Jada's trying to say is 
she's like looking out for Tiffany because if Tiffany hadn't become the household name that she did become, she still would have been in like Hollywood, a sought after actress. And I do think like as a black woman, she was like, make sure you know your worth because if they think that you feel grateful to just be in the room, they're going to pay you as little as possible. And I do think that coming from that angle, like she doesn't have the luxury that like Kate Middleton has where it's like, oh, you're wearing a $25 dress. How like darling and relatable. I feel like Jada was like, you have to understand you have to like really go in and demand your value. And yeah. luckily her star quality did take her to the top and she had this huge breakout year. And I think being relatable has sold her further, but I don't think that that was something they felt they could bank on. I agree with that. I, I don't think it's something that you could bank on. And I do agree. And I think it's good that Jada like had this conversation with her. I just feel like the way it's hammered in, in this book, I'm just like Jada shut up. No, it <laughs> is like written in this weird way where I feel like you're rehearing the story from a version of Tiffany that doesn't understand what Jada's saying yet. Because by the end she comes around to what Jada's saying and she's like recognizing that she has this mentality of someone who grew up very poor and the scarcity mindset which does hold you back ultimately. At some point you do have to like spend money to make money or you do have to like change your mindset or else you'll always feel afraid. But the way she quotes Jada, I guess it's for comedic purposes, but Jada kind of comes off like a dick. She has a knockoff Michael Kors bag and Jada's like horrified. She's like, you can't go out in that. I mean, to text anybody and say, you need a better dress is like me. Yeah. Jada is like, you can't keep going out of the house without makeup on. You had to like leave your house looking like a star. Yeah. And I do think Tiffany says, I'll wear makeup for promotions. But I think she manages to see what Jada's saying for the professionalism, but then also say, I'm always going to be true to myself. Yeah. And she loves comedy. She says, because she look like shit on stage. And it doesn't matter because she's there to be funny. And I mean, yeah, overall, I get what I think Jada is supposed to be saying. I think the way it's written in this book is. No, it's written from the perspective of somebody who doesn't get it, which makes it harder. Hard to get. Yeah. Okay. She wraps up where she's at with her mom and her dad. Her dad died during the writing of this book. And my heart like breaks for her. She knew he was sick because he had a heart problem when he was staying with her. He told the hospital not to call me or contact me until after he was dead. They called me just before he died because they felt like that was wrong. I flew up there, paid for the mortuary, everything. And then she tells this crazy story that her dad's like his one request is that he wants to be cremated and then put next to his mother in Africa in Eritrea. So I called one of his cousins to tell him. He started telling me about all this property I got in Africa, that I'm actually a princess in his old village, that my dad was like a king in the village, but he ran away because of the war. Then he was saying there's back taxes that I need to pay and all this stuff. And if I come home, I have to come with some type of security because there's still a war going on in the village where my grandmother's grave is. And I have to claim this land for the family before the government finds out my father is dead because they'll confiscate it from my family. And then we won't have nothing. And that's what they live off of. I didn't know about any of this. I feel like this is a movie, hopefully not a tragedy. I mean, that is crazy. I just know that I married a man who promised to find my daddy. I got 10 years with my dad. I learned a lot, but I also feel like he punked out on me. Now he wants me to go to Africa. I don't know. I'm trying to find the funny in it. I still can't find nothing funny about it, but I'm trying. I mean, everything in her life is like the craziest story I've ever heard. Yeah, I don't know. She's an African princess. And I'm also like, is everyone just lying to you? Like, is your stepdad lying to you about cutting the brakes? Is your cousin like lying to you about being like, oh, there's back taxes. Send me the cash and I'll get it to the government. Yes. Like everything in her life sounds crazy. But it also, I don't know what to believe. <laughs> and then to me, this was like the saddest part in the whole book. She talks about her mom. She says, my mom is still alive. She's in a mental institution in Riverside. One time she was arrested. They took her to this place in Norwalk. They were healing her. Whatever medicines they was giving her, whatever they were doing, it was like she was normal. I would go see her and she was my mama. She didn't say anything mean or try to hit me. She hugged me. She held me. We talked. And then she says she leaves these places. She stops taking her medications. 
And then she acts out towards Tiffany and she told Tiffany, she goes, I hate you the most because you look like me and you look like your ugly ass dad. Then she popped me in the mouth. Damn it. I'm 37 years old, still getting popped in the fucking mouth. My goal is to get enough money to buy a duplex. I want to put her in one of those units and hire a full-time nurse to take care of her. Then I want to get her on whatever medications they gave her when she was in Norwalk so she can be my mama again. Honestly, that's all I really want from life. I don't know. I think that's like the saddest thing I've ever heard in my like. I mean, I'd want that for her so badly. I would like donate to Tiffany Haddish. I know. I mean, I'm sure she has enough money. Yeah, for hopefully it at now. this point. Think about the, her breakout year. Once she came onto the scene from Girls Trip, she was in everything. And then she talks about Girls Trip coming out and how it just changed her life overnight. She says that she suddenly was successful and there were so many producers, so many people that wouldn't work with her who were emailing her, texting her that day. She said she got hundreds of texts within those first few weeks. And she, this I related to just like finding it hard not to be petty. She was like all these people who said no to me before. Like I get that it's good business for me to just be open to it now, but God damn it. Would I love to tell them to shut the fuck up? I will say overall, one thing that I feel sad about kind of is that she is like an A-lister or was at least for a few years because I think that that is like an inherently lonely lifestyle that fucks with your brain. And mm-hmm. I think that she would have been best as like a very rich and successful but niche celebrity. Yeah. I mean, completely coincidentally, like I was like Googling her yesterday because I wanted to watch some of her stand up. And I saw that on Valentine's Day, she was arrested with a DUI. And like my heart just went so out to her because I was thinking about that kind of like lifestyle change to go f- from what she'd been through. I mean, arguing with Jada about a $500 dress to being one of the biggest stars. I mean, a couple of years ago, she was one of the most famous people. I remember there was like a scandal that she was doing some giant show in Miami two or three years ago. And everyone complained because I guess she showed up pretty drunk on stage and had a bad show. And I was just like thinking about what she's been through, like the kind of change in your life to like be homeless, be kicked out of your own home at 18, to have been through foster care, to have been raising your siblings at eight and your mom as a child to now having all of this money and all of this power and all of this fame and all these people like looking to you and judging you like the money and the fame doesn't make those traumas go away. Like that's still in you. The idea that her dad showed up and left because he said that she made him feel like a pauper. And so, like, first it was he didn't want to be around to take care of her. And now she's too rich and successful for him to like it. Like, nothing is good enough. I don't know. I just, like, hope everybody on earth is nice to her. And I know. She read her like book. The picture of earnestness. All she wants is, like, love and support. And I'm like, why can't people just give that to her? And she's so funny. I love her. I support her. Oh, I have one last sad thing I have to say. Uh-oh. I was reading this book and I got to the very last page before I had any issues with her, which is that it turns out this book was co-written by Tucker Max. I mean, can I actually say I'm scared, please. If you're going to say he's not that bad, we're going to have to fight. No, I was going to say that I would rather it not be him. But this was a good book. His name is on the cover. I obviously fuck him, but like, I don't know. It doesn't really affect my view of the book. I don't know. I'm just like, what did he do? Was he writing in her voice? Because this was pretty like, this was pretty A-A-V-E. Do you know what I mean? I, like, the idea of like Tucker Max sitting down and being like, my booty is deadly. Like I am like, I'll kill you, Tucker Max. <laughs> you better not have written one fucking word in this book. I agree with that. Like, fuck uh. you, Tucker. You're a has-been loser. 
You were the first person that people went and said, well, this is disgusting. I mean, a society that allows Barstool to flourish looked at you and said, you're too much. <laughs> like, we canceled him before we canceled Hef or Harvey Weinstein. Like, he was the first most egregious, disgusting man of all time. Anyway. Me and Tucker Max went to the same high school, so I have, like, a real personal feeling of guilt. I can tell. Any other thoughts? No. Anyway, I hope to see you guys at Nikki's Unisex on Thursday and if you want to get tickets for our Moment House show, hit the link in the show notes and we'll also post it on our Instagram. And thank you to our five-star reviewers. Thank you so much to Melmore1023. I'd read a Melmore memoir. Thank you, Brianna Danny 444 I forgive you for not adding a fourth four. Thank you, Super Katie. You are the most super Katie I know. Thank you, Christy MG. I'll take a billion milligrams of Christy. Thank you, Natty Yua. I really appreciate Yua. Thank you, Sasha VDB. Thanks for being a very down bitch. Thank you, Lucky Dog1826. You are the luckiest dog I've ever met. Thank you, Miss Alley Cat. Baby, when the Alley Cats strike, it's Miss Alley Cat. Thank you, Christina19. Congrats on being legal. Thank you, C Bale, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. You are the Batman of my heart. Thank you, the Kristen Bell jar. Let me tell you what, if you were Kristen Bell, I would save you from Dax Shepard today. Thank you, CH8052. Thank you, my favorite number. Thanks, Janeth. You are the best. Thank you, Chloe Lover. I hope that you and Chloe are happy together forever. Thank you, Sloney Baloney, for providing the perfect lunch meat. Thank you, Dane614. Thank you for cooking up this incredible review. Thank you, AOC is a goddess. Honestly, agree. Thank you, Mad Dog Willie 97. Don't be a mad dog, be a happy dog. And that is all for this week. Thank you guys so much. I appreciate you endlessly. See you next week.